0: In this episode of 92I Talks, Judy Collins, one of the reigning icons of folk music, talks with Rolling Stone contributor Anthony DeCurtis about her life, career, and new album, Silver Skies Blue, with special guest collaborator, singer songwriter Ari Hest. The conversation was recorded on September 6, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y.
1: Thank you so much.
2: That was all very nice to hear about what I've been doing with my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if only I were that person. That's what people have said to me, you know, if they get these elaborate introductions, you know, they yeah, I mean, I think, like, so many people, artists often, you know, struggle with that feeling of even however much they've attained that, um, you know, that, that somehow, it, you know, it isn't really them or... I wonder if you exist in, in relationship to you know, your own work in, in a way like that.
2: Oh, I'm fascinated by the whole thing because it's so you know, they say the past is not gone at all. It lives in the present. And I think in music we've I found that's so true because I can go back now in in concerts I can go back through fifty <laughs> dare I say (laughs) I mean you are looking at the uh, American Idol of 1957 (laughs) and (laughs) so I can go back through repertoire that goes right back to my childhood with my father's music with the uh, Rodgers and Hart that I sang and then right through the Gypsy Rover and into into, uh, 1961 and made of constant sorrow and then I can tear through all you know that all that material is just phenomenal. So I live with it, and yes, it is. I I have access to it, which is good. But when you do, that's even better.
0: <laughs> well, it, you know, it's 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 brought me a, a great deal of delight. And as I say, um, you know, it also, you know, when I say it educated me, it wasn't like that. That was you know a classroom experience. But you know, when I would listen to you know Sad, or oh. you know, I had no idea where that music came oh. from. You led me there. Uh, you know, you brought me. You know, you helped me to explore all that, and you know, find out. You know, those kinds of relationships between, you know, a kind of folk music that I was just beginning to understand. You know, and really these kind of art songs that you know you were really uh, beginning to define as a style. It was, you know, quite extraordinary, and um, its impact on I think many of us is you know continues.
2: It's right back to 1966, sitting in front of my. Tape recorder uh, playing the tape of the music from the Marat Saad, which was the production, the Albert, <coughs> um, the Broadway production of the Marat Saad. I'm trying to think of the of the director's name, and uh, the, there, there was music, but it had no kind of beginning, middle, and end. And so I strung it together. I cut the tape and made it into a song, which goes. Marat, we're poor And the poor stay poor Are you going to sing it with me?
0: (laughs) Marat, will Don't make us wait anymore
1: We want our our rights And we we don't care how We want our revolution
3: Now
2: (laughs) And my... I thought when it came to it that I would sing you a little rose and flows of angel here, but this is better. <laughs> Maybe we'll sing more of that later. Um, my favorite story about that is that I was driving with one of the great music moguls, whose name I will not mention, and I was driving with him. He drove me home from some benefit somewhere. It was 1966, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm learning, I'm gonna record the songs from the Marat And he said, Hmm, I don't remember any music from the Marat <laughs> So I thought, oh, the music business is so in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, it was an amazing selection of opportunities for me, starting with the folk music and starting classically with the training that I had. And it, it prepared me to jump. When I heard something that I loved, which is the secret of the whole thing.
0: Of course, you know you had uh, like very serious classical training, and um, you know you're, you know, but kind of moved out of that. Uh, you know, you were being kind of groomed uh, you know, to be a concert pianist, and uh, you know, decided to go another route. Could you talk about you know what kind of motivated that, and how that made you feel at the time, and what the repercussions of it were?
2: I was lucky enough to to play the piano eagerly and study seriously, and my father was smart enough to find me a great teacher in Denver whose name was Antonia Brico, who had had a great history here and around the world because she was a conductor who, as a woman, her first professional gig was with the Berlin Philharmonic in 1929, And uh, the critics raved about her and said she did better with a lot of the guys, better than a lot of the guys who were conducting in Berlin at that moment. And she had her own orchestra in Denver, in uh, Carnegie Hall, and she moved to Denver with both of her pianos, her Steinways, because they told her that she was going to be selected to be the conductor of the Denver Symphony because they were going professional. And so she moved, being one of great faith, and then they said, "Oops." you're a woman, you can't be the conductor. And I always thought to myself, hadn't they noticed before? Uh, uh. (laughs) And so there I was. um, I think I started studying with her when I was 10. So I was there with this incredibly dynamic Italian-Dutch artist who was a great teacher and a great pianist, too, of course, and I studied, and she um, told me what to do. We didn't ever look at the music, you know, before. We uh, we couldn't go to iTunes or get a record <laughs> of it or something. She wanted us to memorize from the beginning, to memorize by analysis each um, each of the bars. And so that's really where we got the training for the the whole philosophy of how music is put together. And I was... I loved it. I was... My mother always. I said to her, "Did you have to force me to play the piano?" And she said, "No, I had to remind you to wash your hands." And, that, <laughs> <laughs> and but otherwise, I had my my two hours a day with the then at then at that point the Baldwin Grand in our house, in our home, <clears throat> which we got because Rico insisted that I have a proper piano. And then I played with her orchestra when I was thirteen, and it was very exciting. And, uh, but, you know, I was in the throes of teenage angst and had a lot of uh, things going on in my life, and I was not very happy. And I think I discovered at that point, when I was 14, I tried to kill myself at 14. And it was because I was asked to do a piece by list called La Campanella. Anybody who knows it knows that it. it is a train wreck um, and very difficult to play. And... So I was obviously kind of off off the rails, you know what I mean? And I was, but I was playing and practicing. And then when I was fifteen, I found on the radio, I found folk songs, and they were two songs: um, "The Gypsy Rover" and uh, "Twas in the Merry Month of May." And the story about Barbara Allen, and that really, absolutely, dynamically changed my life. It split my life from my teenage. Woes and triumphs into uh, being part of the great folk game What
0: did you hear when you heard those songs? What 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 about them spoke to you?
2: I heard the story. First of all, I had this. I had my best friends were dancers, and we had been doing Marsha and Carol and I had been doing this performance of of uh, Little Red Riding Hood for a long time, way too long. <laughs> We'd played it all over Denver. We played it at the Elks Club and the Kiwanis Club and the. <laughs> And at the Lions Club, and we were we played at the, um, the hospitals and the, the every place. We were going to take it to to Las Vegas, but we desperately
0: <laughs>
2: we desperately, would have been a
0: little bit of a transition. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I would sit at the, yeah. the
2: piano and play those themes, and my friends would dance, and we got some ringers from, the from our class to play the woodsman and so on. And uh, <laughs> I remember Peggy Wilcox, very very tall, and so. We I, when I heard the song on the radio on a Saturday morning, it was, the gypsy rover came over the hill down to the valley so shady, and I thought, that's it, that's our next hit. We can tell that story, and so I got a guy to play the guitar and I got a drummer, and we played that at the Elks Club and the Kiwanis Club, <laughs> and uh, at the hospital, you know, Fitzsimmons General Hospital, and. The the other one that I that I learned within a few days really was Bar, was Barbara Allen. It, I heard the stories, and I think in part something clicked because my father had always sung, a, you know, a, "Oh Danny Boy, the pipes," and I grew up with that. I think I heard it in the womb. <laughs> so he was a great singer, and he sang the Irish songs, and we didn't. We kind of didn't separate it. I thought it was Rogers and Hart, maybe these sure. songs, you know.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, maybe it could be from Brigadoon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, you'll take the high road. And, <laughs> and uh, I-, I thought, but, but somehow it all kind of came together just on that morning when I heard that music. And I, I was, that was it. I didn't look back.
0: You know, one of the things, obviously, you know, at that point, you know, folk music uh, in, in the U.S. was sort of bound up often with a lot of what that was going on politically mm-hmm. and a lot that was going on socially. And I wonder at what moment you um, made that connection.
2: Well, it was already in my genetic pool because in my family we were instructed that we were, we were determined by my father's actions and his uh, being a radio personality who talked about everything. McCarthy and uh, the war in Vietnam and, you know, in 57 would say, what are, the, what are we doing over there with these advisors?" You know, we're crazy. I mean, the French have lost. He named our, our Siamese Dien Bien Phu. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he would talk about everything. John Henry Falk was fired from the radio in Texas when he talked about the same things that my father spent his career talking about. He would talk, and my people adored him in Denver, so nobody fired him. They couldn't bear to fire him. But, but he was uh, walking the line there, you know, very, very narrow line politically. And that's where we learned at the dinner table and listening to him that we had to take part, we had to be socially conscious, and then I then into my life came Lingo the Drifter. And Lingo the Drifter... I can't even. It's not something you can make up. You know, it's not. It's not possible to think of how this happened. Lingo the Drifter came to Denver probably in fifty four, fifty five. He had his own radio show. He sang all the songs of Woody and Pete. He loved my father's show. He came to see us and visit us, visit my dad, and he would come to the to the house and they would drink whiskey and talk about politics. They were both on the same side, and and they would sing. He, he, uh, <coughs> Lingo would sing, This land is your land, this land is my land, from California to the New York Island. And my father would sing, Some enchanted evening.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and and from Lingo, and I got involved then. He was the president of the Denver Folklore Society. He knew all the songs of Woody and Pete. He had... Uh, gone to Hollywood and won $64,000 and brought it home in two bags, all cash, and bought the top of Lookout Mountain, where he had built a cabin. And he took us up there to the Denver Folklore Society gatherings on, on Saturday night. And when we'd finished learning, uh, I am a maid of constant sorrow, and all of the versions of that, we would then, after drinking a lot of home brew, we would then listen to to Lingo the Drifter give what he called the Dormant Brain Cell Research Foundation speech. (laughs) (laughs) And I often think when I look at Fox News, which is very seldom, but sometimes you can't ignore it, maybe I should go and give them the Dormant Brain Cell. (laughs) Comes in handy to know it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, what... um, Then... So, to talk about your coming to New York and what that was like.
2: It was in the stars. It was, we all come to New York from everywhere. It's the destination. Certainly it was because Gertie's Folk City was here. My manager at that point was Odetta's husband, Danny Gordon. Danny must have done me many good favors because. I got to these places, you know. He was he and Odetta and I were very friendly, and Danny was always around. I met him in Chicago at the Gate of Horn. But the minute I got my job singing in New, in Denver, I didn't stop. You know, I went from one club to another, and Danny helped me to get to the to uh, Gertie's Folk City. And I was after two years. It was 1961, and I had started getting paid for this in 1959. And uh, I always like to say I've been I've been uh, paid for it, you know, been singing and been doing it for 57 years, and it's the second oldest profession in the world. <laughs> <laughs> what I say. And there I was at, at Gertie's Folk City. And I, I always thought that I got my manager that year, but I didn't. Uh, Harold Leventhal and I got together a couple of years later. But I did get a record deal from Jack Holzman, who heard me in that week, and I was the headliner at uh, at Curtis Folk City. And there was this crowd of people, all of whom I recognized from various record covers that I had of all these wonderful, extraordinary singers. Dave Van Ronk was in the crowd, you know, and uh, Ramlin Jack Elliott was there, and uh, Peter Paul and Mary when they were, you know, civilians. And, uh, and then I found out I was the headliner, and then I thought I found out that my. My opener was a a 13-year-old named Arlo. And so I kind of, you know, fell right into it. Well, I was already into it, because you can't really, there's no way to get out of it once you've been to Lookout Mountain with Slingo the Drifter. That was it. I mean, that was the mark. (laughs) The mark, like the the Clancy brothers used to take my hand and say, now you've got the Irish mark on you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, talk a little bit about you know, what the city was like in those days. I mean, that scene, uh, you know, was so vibrant. You know, you were at the center of it. You know, there was so much going on. And also, you yeah. know, the city, um, you know, seemed like a different place then. I wonder, you know, if oh, you can describe God, what the atmosphere was a like. a very different and
2: place. It was all about A little the... bit
0: cheaper, you know. Oh, my
3: <laughs> Oh,
2: my <laughs> Much, And nobody, nobody had any money. Um, everybody was, I mean, Dylan was living... And he's always homeless. I knew, him in, I knew him in Denver when he was homeless, trying to get a job and so on. And he hadn't changed his name yet um, at that point. And he hadn't or in the early time in New York. But then suddenly he changed his name to Bob Dylan, and then we all know what happened. I said, why didn't you do that in Denver? Um, it, was, it was so romantic, because there were so many singer-songwriters running around the village, singing at all the clubs, and you'd go to the Gaslight, and you'd hear Dave Van Ronk, and and uh, you you had, uh, Izzy Young's shop, and you'd go into Izzy Young's shop, and you'd get your your guitar picks and your copy of Sing Out, and you'd find out who's in town, who's working where. Uh, it was it was full of, uh, innuendo, gossip, sex. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Not overtly. Everybody was was very shy and very, you know, people weren't sort of out there. It was not a time for the Kardashian kind of, (laughs) 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 nothing like that. Although, on the other hand, it was very innocent, you know, and there was a lot of nudity in in, uh, the park down there, Washington Park, once in a while. Not all the time, just, you know, once in a while around a bush you might peek at some, something a little bit risque, <laughs> but it was very subtle and very charming. <laughs> unlike, so unlike today. Uh, <laughs> but, but there was something so fresh and innocent and yet right on the edge because we were, there was a war, this terrible war going on, which we knew we could all feel it. it was going, It was going to happen. You know, there were advisors there, but of course we trusted that Kennedy would get rid of them, send them home, send everybody home. And it was very political. Anybody that was in the folk music, um, the great folk scare was marching, going to Washington, um, protesting. And that was part of your life, I think. It was part of what you were expected to do and what you wanted to do. And then we'd go to one of these big marches. You know, I remember going to... uh, the huge anti war march in Washington and thinking coming home and thinking wherever I lived, I guess I was already in New York by that time, coming home and thinking well now don 't th- they must get it now, they get it now, they know they have to stop it now we're just we just are you know getting how many fifty million dollars a year to get the bombs out of Laos that have been sitting there for forty years i mean this 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 war destroyed us in a way and we always knew I said you know this is not this is coming back on us this is not something separate to our lives over there in Southeast Asia this is what our DNA is going to be about now is about this war and we all knew it and we all took actions sang songs wrote songs tried to follow Pete you know Saying, "Where have all the flowers gone? Flowers gone every time we got a chance," and thought that it was going to change.
0: The um, level of uh, you know, kind of intensity and energy on that scene, you know, in you know, politically, uh, musically, uh, you know, was 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 really profound. I mean, it was one of the great, you know, I think moments in American music. Um, was there a sense of, you know, as you began to get more popular, you know, and you put records out and people began to know, um, you know, who you were, uh, you know, did that change your life much?
2: I don't think so. It's nice to have a little more money. Um, you know, I started to make a little money and uh, I bought my mother a car. I mean, that was a big deal. It was a surprise on Christmas with a big bow around it. It was an English car, which didn't work very well in Colorado in the mountains in the snow. <laughs> so we were always under the hood with that car. But, but yeah, I, but, you know, fundamentally, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. It was nice to buy a pair of shoes, uh, but fundamentally, no. I would say no. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I never bought mansions or fancy cars, and except that one. Um, I had a Volvo, which I spent a lot of time writing to Sweden about because it was always falling apart. <laughs> I have this quite extensive file of letters back and forth to the president of Volvo. <laughs> I kept losing out. You know, I told him it was a letter. <laughs> They never did give me a new car. <laughs> Everything fell off, the differential, the wheels. I mean, it was just a disaster, this car. But, but I don't know, you know, no. I mean, I can't say that what was so wonderful was that I began to have what everybody wants who has any sense, which is the chance to be an artist on a daily basis, and work in a field that I knew something about, and get that this was going to be my life and that I was going to be able to pay my rent with it. And that's the vital part of it that's what yes you can you can you can do a lot of things with uh, uh, the proceeds from what's happening. but the essential part is I got that rare privilege to be an artist, and I always will be luckily because of my because of my training I mean I credit Brico for this of course this and my father too you know the discipline the fact that I learned how to get up in the morning drunk or not the night Mm -hmm. before and do what you have to do and show up and be on you know it's all part of it it all comes together you write you sing you study you work you go on the road you do and it's not for everybody you know it's not an easy thing to do at all um I'm reading this new book about the um, Booth family, about Junius uh, Booth and his children, Edwin and John Wilkes, and uh, he was a theatrical man. He was a very famous all over the world as a Shakespearean artist, and it was, you know, it was impossible for him to do what he did, which was get on the trains and take the kind of... I mean, it was just destroying him. So it can destroy you, the traveling alone. However... Uh, Slow the truly, You learn how to do it. You learn what to do and what not to do. Perhaps more, most important, what not to do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. Mostly by trying it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, you know there are songwriters uh, you know whose songs I first heard in your interpretations of them. You know, Joni Mitchell, for example, and Leonard Cohen, certainly you know can you talk about just coming upon those songs and you know and I mean after that becoming a kind of person that you know obviously people would would seek you out you know to perform their songs but you know at that moment you know to to have the ear to identify you know greatness and to you know deliver performances that you know took those songs you know often beyond where they might otherwise have gone you know that that you know, is a gift in itself. I wonder if you can talk about Absolutely. you know some of those moments.
2: Absolutely, it is a gift unto itself. My mother always said to me, you know, it didn't come, you didn't come by this on your own. You learned this from your father, and I did because he always chose the greatest songs. He sang the best songs from the shows. You know, he had a radio show for thirty years. He had a lot of lot of days and weeks and months and years where he had to pick just the right song, and and I heard them all and. And I say there's not there, there's a mystery to it because it comes from inside. And if a song hits me, it hits me like that, and I have to do it. And if it doesn't, I never want to hear it again. It's sort of that simple. It gets your heart... And then you have to turn it into your own. And after all, I was trained as a musician. I was trained as an interpretive musician. I was playing Mozart. I was tra- playing Mo- Rachmaninoff. I was, if I was singing, I was singing songs that I would... I would sing in church, of course, in the choirs and the school choirs and, and uh, learn the pieces that I was playing. But I was an interpretive artist, so that, too came into play was hearing the best of the songs and knowing a great voice. My father was a great singer. He had an innate... He also studied, but he had an innate gift, and he was his lyricism, you know, his voice was very clear. His lyrics were totally clear. I had... Um, so I had that, that in my... sort of in my pocket, and, and I had no intention or no desire to write songs... I had a desire to find the best, and I would hear them. And I would hear them all the way down my body. And I would say, oh, I have to sing, I must. It was like knowing that you have to have a certain amount of nourishment a day, and you have to have a certain number of songs that, that you can, can fit your personality and that you can live through. And you live through these when you perform them. So I did many... Traditional songs at the beginning, and then I got to the to the village, and there were all these singer-songwriters running around. And uh, Tom Paxson would come along and say, on the street, you know, I'd say, I just wrote this great song, "Bottle of Wine, Fruit on the Vine." When you gonna let me get sober? And I'd say, sure, and tomorrow I'll record it. <laughs> that happened many times, and then, of course, with with the singer-songwriters came that, that. I recorded Dylan right away and, of course, um, Dick Farina. We were talking about Dick earlier. Dick Farina and, uh, and, of course, the great Pete Seeger. I recorded Turn, 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 I think on my third album. And then it was natural, as you said. People would then come to me because I'd record them. A lot of these people in the village didn't have a record label yet. And they would write the songs they needed to have someone sing them. Because after all, the song, I always say the song rules. The song actually has a mind of its own. And it goes out into the world and it doesn't really belong to the purple people that wrote, that wrote it anymore. It, it's everybody who touches it, does it differently and puts a different mark on it. And so it sort of has to be flexible. You know? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's why Leonard came to me in 1966 uh, because he wanted me to hear what he was doing so that he, he could find out whether I thought he was writing songs and he was <laughs>
0: <laughs> to be sure um, what do you think about the first time you, you heard Dylan's voice
2: <laughs> I was uh, I knew him of course in Colorado he was coming around to try to get a job and couldn't and he was scruffy and kind of desperate and he came to New York, and he was—he would come and hear me sing in Colorado, and uh, at the Gilded Garter, up in uh, wherever it is, at Central City. And so he showed up. He was singing at, uh, but you know, it wasn't—it wasn't his song, his voice at that point. It was that he was singing badly chosen, Woody Guthrie blues. Badly, badly chosen, and badly sung. <laughs> But that was not really, it was not a test. It wasn't fair because then suddenly I read, I didn't hear him first sing this, I read uh, Blowing in the Wind in Sing Out. And I said, oh, you've got to be kidding. This is that guy? (laughs) 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 I couldn't believe my eyes. And I couldn't believe my, I was reading this song. It was printed out in Sing Out. I said, "Oh my God!" And of course, then I quickly knew well, this is this is phenomenal. This is a phenomenal song, and I think it hit everybody like that. Absolutely. And uh, his my my friend, uh, who uh, Al Grossman had been had become a friend of mine in Chicago at the Gate of Horn, which he owned, and uh, he called me up and he said. He said I have this tape now of Dylan's songs and he said uh, you know I'm sending them around to the guys at the music uh, the big companies and they they say he what do you think they say he can't sing I said who cares <laughs> I mean you hear those songs and you hear that voice and you know he's very clear you go back and listen to his early song, early record he's clear as a bell It's a it's it's a you know, in 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 the way, it's a broadside, political, social, and everything else. It's a broadside with somebody who happens to be able to carry a tune. You have to hear into those songs what's going on there. You know, you hear a "Oh, you masters of war," and you say, "Oh, I never heard anything like this before." Exactly. So there's a there's a way in which. Um, <laughs> Who cares? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. No, <laughs> no, because I I ask only because it was, um, you anyway, know, at least for I, I mean you were familiar more with the folk tradition certainly than yes. I was, you know. Well, so that you no, know, I don't it, know that about it, you. there, there you. were you could elements be very,
2: of. I don't mean to say yes.
0: No, true. no, but it's true. You could
2: be very cons- deeply <laughs> you know, involved so, no, with the but, folk tradition. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm not being falsely modest. I'm <laughs> just being uh, honest, I guess. But you. Um, you know, so that, you know, some, there were certainly some voices that were that were similar, but you know, for anyone, you know, with relatively mainstream taste, and even in a lot of folk music, you know, this the kind of beautiful voice that you have was kind of, you know, I mean a very high version of the standard, but still the standard. Yeah, but when Dylan came along, it seemed like the standard changed. You know, it suddenly <laughs> became possible to well, to be Leonard Cohen singing his own songs, or you know, Lou Reed for that matter, singing his own songs. You know, people who weren't singers in the way... uh, uh, Well, in the way that you're a singer, certainly. You know, they were just... um, They were using their voices as... uh, a kind of a a way to convey their meaning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and it was...
2: And, you know, I thought, speaking of that, I really thought, when I first started recording, I didn't think of myself as a singer at all. I thought of myself as a storyteller. When I started making my, and you you can hear in the voice, you know, I'm way down here in the basement uh, on those cup, first couple of records because I really didn't I didn't know much about singing anyway. But I really thought uh, this is what is getting me is these stories, and I can manage, you know, I can sing them, I can carry a tune, and I could sing, no question. I can't tell you why this hit such a chord with me or with others or why I don't differentiate or why I don't even I mean there are great singers in the world and then there's Dylan and his 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 whole career and his whole output stands on the fact that he's in spite of whatever he's not equipped with and you could If you wanted to examine it closely, you could say that musically there are things that he's not. But it doesn't matter because he gets it out. And that's fundamentally why the world changed when he started writing those songs. And people were flipping out of their minds. You know, all these young men, singers in the village were going crazy. Uh, And it was probably, I was talking recently about it, it probably shook people up in a good way. Because as you said, it did allow something to happen that maybe was not acceptable before. Right. But also it, it allowed um, people to say things in a way that was a little different.
0: You know, one of the other things, I mean, obviously there was the moment, you know, a few years after that, uh, when Dylan, quote-unquote, goes electric. Uh, I think a lot of people, there was a certain kind of panic but it seemed like you negotiated that transition by just simply following your own path. I mean, it seemed like you had a lot of cards in your deck and didn't immediately you know, have to go hire a rock and roll band. You, know, like you could just make the kind of music that you set out to do um, you know, kind of step by step. Yes. I wonder if that was you know, the way that you saw it.
2: It was fascinating. I was just reading Jack's book about uh, "Follow the Music." Jack Holzman's story of Electra. And, yeah,
0: that's a great and, book.
2: And oh my God, I, I, it, it's it's like a it's like my own personal fairy tale in a way because it tells from the beginning of Electra right through when he left, and you know he had everything on Electra every kind of queen and Jim Morrison and me and Carly and. Oscar Brand and Theo McHale and Josh White. You know, he, he hired Josh White. He put Josh on the label when nobody would go near Josh White because of his politics, you know, and his being accused of being a, you know, red diaper baby. Um, and so I can see, you know, it's interesting to read it again because, I, I, yes, it came naturally. It was part of living out where I was supposed to go and there wasn't any shoving or any arguments or any, oh, you should... It just kind of did flow out very naturally. And my own background was classical music probably helped me in a lot of ways to make those transitions, to decide, for instance, to work with Josh Rifkin in, uh, in yeah, my life. Amazing, yeah, those amazing
0: arrangements. And then
2: on, uh, on Wildflowers to... to that was such a huge departure and it did have on it it had the it had uh, the uh, when you're lost in the rain and war it was yeah. an orchestration you know and it had the marsault of course and then it had uh, the new songs by by uh, by Leonard that nobody'd ever heard before and uh, it was very very and it had it had uh, Bertolt Brecht on it, it had Pirate Jenny As well. So it was a huge leap into a new world, but we didn't, I didn't, I just knew we had to do something. Mark and I, my producer, just, we needed to move and do something different. We wanted to. And we both had the backgrounds that allowed us to look for things and make those choices that were perhaps would be odd for somebody else who didn't have that background.
0: Well, and, uh, you know, before we bring Ari out and talk about your most recent record, which is, you know, really, really beautiful, and I'm I'll, I'll wait maybe to, for Ari to get out here, but I'm, I'm so struck by how well you guys sing together. It is it's quite extraordinary. But um, you know, I wanted to talk about Stephen Stills for a minute, and you know, what Sweet would you Judy. like
1: to talk? About?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sweet Judy, Blue Eyes, and you know, just having you know that relationship sort of documented in such a powerful way, you know, in his songs, you know, Helplessly Hoping, and yeah. that, um, you know, that you know, persist down to this day. People listen to those songs and and, and think of you, you know. And, it, it, you know, it's a different thing from, you know, say your own performances and, you know, in your own uh, singing and your own writing. You know, it's almost like somebody making a movie about you or, or something. I wonder if you could just, you know, say a few words about a that.
2: psychic movie. Yeah. Yes, it was like having somebody... Write a book about you, or about a movie. He read. He obviously read my journals. <laughs> 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 well, the way it happened was that I had a date to do an album in Los Angeles, and it was called Who Knows Where the Time It It became known as Who Knows Where the Time Goes because that song came along at the end of the sessions. Actually, it had uh, three or four of my own songs on it, and the band was a new band to me Van Dyke Parks was on it and Chris Etheridge was in it and a sad tragic uh, drummer um, Jim Gordon Gordon. that's a drugs and rock and roll story Tragedy. Sad, tragic story Absolutely. he's still in jail somewhere yeah, I know. for killing his mother with a hammer when he was stoned on something, one of those weird drugs. And who in addition knows? to being
0: a great, great drummer, Jim Gordon wrote the beautiful kind of lyric ending to Layla, for you, oh, those of you who know no, it. You know, he wrote know. that piano part. And um, He
2: was so good, so yeah. talented. And that band was so... And then Stephen came t- into that band. And so we had the whole album, you know, the time to work, and so we had this affair, which was rather short-lived, actually. It really wasn't, there wasn't very much to it <laughs> uh, but it certainly reverberated. Mental note for
0: mental note for the next time I interview Steven Stills. Or just gotta, Don't tell. Uh, him no, that. no, no I he's went. deluded. My lips are sealed. My lips are
2: sealed. Oh my god! Anyway. <laughs> anyway, he wrote the song. <laughs> And he came to see me in, on his birth My birthday, he came. I was doing a concert out there, I think, at the Santa Monica Civic. And I was staying at some hotel there on the strip. And he came and he brought me two things. He brought me a beautiful guitar as a gift, an old Martin. And he, then he sang me that song. And uh, he sang it, and we all both wept. But I said, It's not going to get me back.
0: <laughs> wow. <clears throat> it's a good try, though.
2: Good try. And then later I found out that he'd gone into the studio with John Haney, our wonderful engineer, and he said, okay, John, turn out the lights, and you go and just turn the machines on, and when I leave, I'll turn out the lights and I'll turn off the machine. But you get out of here and let me just do... And then he made this whole album, and this was before we finished mixing Who Knows Where the Time Goes. He made this whole album which had Sweet Judy, Blue Eyes... Helplessly Hoping, a song called Judy, 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 a <laughs> whole bunch of things, which which came out, which was dropped in the trash somewhere, and Graham Nash found it 40 years later and put it out as an album called Just Roll Tape. So I knew that this had been cooking a lo- for a long time, you know, before he sang me the song. But anyway, it was... I mean, you, you you have to... It is like a movie, you're right, of the times and the kind of rom- romance and, and, you know... I mean, he... In the song, you know, he hated two things. He hated New York and he hated therapy. And I was in both.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they sort of go hand in hand. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh...
2: yes, that's right. Thank God.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ari, come out and uh, take us to a new place.
4: Hey there. How Hi there. Are
0: good Hi. to see you.
2: How are you?
4: I'm doing fine. How are you doing?
2: Good. We're having a good time here. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, can hear. I,
0: was, I was hearing the whole thing in
3: the yeah. back.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, why don't we, we start talking about, uh, you know, this collaboration. Obviously, I know uh, you sang together on Strangers Again, another beautiful song on your, your previous album, the title track. And uh, you know, talk about how you decided to, uh, you know, work together and do more and, and come up with this album should I?
2: Yeah, why don't you start? I've been talking now for way too much. When
4: we do interviews together, that's usually the first thing that happens is we turn to each other and say, who who should talk? (laughs)
2: Who goes first? (laughs) Uh,
4: I know that, that, you know, as far as uh, from my standpoint, what happened was that I I wrote a song uh, shortly after recording Strangers Again with Judy. Uh, I was actually living out in the West Coast for a little while, and uh, I wrote this song, and I was thinking as I was writing it that it would be it would sound better if Judy sang it. Yeah. Uh, and that's I, true of most songs. <laughs> <sometimes>. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very <laughs> kind. Thank you. <laughs> and I and I hadn't, um, you know, I had never approached her about something like that. You know, writing a song and seeing if she's up for that. Uh, so I did, uh, and she immediately responded, "Yes, I would love to sing the song." But I want to sing it with you, and that song was "Silver Skies Blue," which was the the uh, you know the title track for our, our record. And obviously, I was you know curious to see what the what, it, what the duet would sound like, and uh, so we started working uh, with that song, which was mostly written, and she put some finishing touches on it, uh, and it sounded great together, and and we just kind of. Had a moment of of uh, a realization that we should be doing more of this.
2: You know, actually, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That was all true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. That's extraordinary. We Thank had you.
2: recorded a song before that together, which which uh, sort of what it did was when we started, We met about four years ago, so, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Ari came on some shows, and and I heard his songs, and I said, hmm. These are very good, and I one in particular. Um,
4: the fireplace. The
2: fireplace really got to me, and I said to him, "I think we should sing this together." Right. This was right at the beginning, of the first year I think we were working together, and I said, "I'm going to go to Ireland, and I'm going to do this Irish show for PBS, and I'd like you to come over and sing it with me." This song, Fireplace, it's a, such a great song. So we had sung together. So we knew that that worked. And then we did, of course, we did um, Strangers, Strangers yep. again. Yep. So it all, had a, it all had a natural progress. I mean, you were speaking about how these things right. Just... have a natural kind of way that they work.
0: What, um, what made you kind of intuit that your voices would work so well together?
2: Well, I never, I, you know, I've heard a lot of singers. and uh i just you know he sang and i said that's a voice i have to sing with i just have to it's just important to do it there's something there that's very unique and i want to have the chance to see where that could go and so we've been doing that it's very exciting
0: well, Ari, can you talk a little bit about you know, singing with Judy? I mean, uh, I'm sure that that was you know, kind of thrilling and, and exciting, uh, but I'm, I wonder if it was maybe a little intimidating at first. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I always think about this story of uh, the musicians, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who did a lot of production. They used to play with sure. Prince at the time and stuff. And uh, somebody talked to them about producing an Aretha Franklin record. And Jimmy James just said no. He goes, just I can't imagine just myself sitting there and going, no, Aretha, sing it like this. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) uh, um, Anyway, I know
3: exactly
4: what you're talking about. (laughs) We, we've, I've had plenty of moments like that along the way of making the the album, Um, but as far as when we first. you know, when I, when I first heard uh, uh, Judy live was at this uh, festival downtown, where I was an opener and she was headlining, and uh, and I had I had heard recordings, plenty of recordings. Uh, you know, my parents actually their their wedding song was "Since You Asked," oh, so well. uh, you know,
2: I... it's karmic,
4: I, yeah, in some way. So I, you know, I just I knew that. Uh, I, I knew I, I, of course, wanted to sing with her, but I, I didn't think it would get to, to this, this point. You know, I just I heard her voice live for the first time, and I remember being on the side of the stage with my drummer, and both of us were tearing up, and because uh, we just we didn't we we didn't prepare quite for that, <laughs> you know. And uh, and I I was thinking, you know, as she was singing, that yeah, it would be nice to one day sing with her, but I didn't have any idea that it would. You know, culminate in, in this.
0: Well, one of the things that struck me, um, you know, listening, uh, you know, first to you know "Strangers Again" and then the, the current album is just how um, natural your uh, you know your duets are. You know, there isn't a lot of um, there's not a lot of hoopla around them. No. There's not a lot of uh, right. you know we're, you know, we're going to get really fancy here. That's right. We're gonna there's a it just seems very much straight. From the heart, it's actually and,
2: musical.
0: Yes, <laughs> that's very true, yeah, uh, and and then
4: natural. I think both of us wanted to make an album that didn't have bells and whistles, and you know was about our voices. Because and that's that's, that's yeah.
2: what you do anyway. I mean, yeah, it, all all of his albums. You know, when I started listening, he's has eight albums or so, and has been doing this for a long time. And it's the, in in all of the, his recordings, that's clear that that, it's a beautiful song it's a beautiful voice it's a, something that moves you I mean how could you lose really
0: um, Can you talk about uh, sort of writing together how did the collaboration go I
4: think it, it, it depended on the song uh, in yes. some cases there were little bits that I would come up with and uh, ask her what she thought and m- the majority of the writing was then Done uh, in her home studio, uh, where she sat by the piano. I had my guitar. We had, you know, recording on our iPhones. On our,
2: uh, <laughs> that uh, was the only really technical departure. Yes. Otherwise, it was very holistic. Yeah. <laughs>
4: well, we were we were writing the lyrics on yeah, paper. Yeah, on paper. That's
2: right. Oh, thank you. Uh, so.
4: Yeah, that, I think the, the the writing process is very organic, and I think we set out each uh, each time I I came over to the home studio, we really set out to finish a song that day. You know, we we came, uh, like I said, I would come with something that was not finished, maybe a music idea that was uh, that needed uh, a lyric, or it, it really depended on the song.
2: And there was always, to me. You know, I've worked alone for so much, well, my whole life really. I mean, I've never done a collaboration where I was actually singing with someone a lot. I would say very so. I can't, well, I've done a couple of duets in my, maybe half a dozen most in all these years. And, but it's the sound of the voices together. And as a singer, you know, when I was growing up, I sang in choirs and choruses, and I loved it, and I always loved it, and I always loved that sense of being in the pocket with the harmony with other people. And I haven't had that in my life. I haven't. I've chosen. I suppose that's a choice, and until now. And then it would come over me while we were working always. And then we'd do a, you know, we'd do a Secret Harbor, mm-hmm. and then we'd hit that end. Uh, together and it would just I thought well you know it's all worth it <laughs> I mean you hear something like that in your own voice with a person who sings with you in a way that's so complimentary I you know I I grew up playing classical music and, and all kinds of music will do that and uh, it's just so musical it's so satisfying
4: I think also one interesting thing about you know, and I never really talked to you about this. Is that my musical background, my, my songwriting background, or just listening to music as a kid? I was much more interested in the music than I was the lyric. I, I uh-huh. came from thinking, you know, my parents are musicians. I I, I was intrigued by chord changes, uh, and I wasn't. I, I didn't really start paying attention to the lyrics. Uh, until you know, my late, teen, late teens, I guess it was when I was like, okay, I, I understand now what a great song is. It, it's not just about uh, putting together some some chords over a melody. Uh, and you know, I, I, I was listening before, and you were talking about how, how lyric-driven. You know, you were you, were, uh, you came kind of from a, another angle, yeah. and I, I'm sure that informed the songs that we. Uh, we, we wrote I mean I, I know that most of the time I would come to you it was with a music idea uh, and I was hoping that you could uh, you know write the perfect lyric for it
2: you know, well I think your, the lyrics that you presented too were just terrific Thank and <laughs> it, was a good, it was a good melding of both of our points of view about songwriting and about the lyric and the direction of the song and it seemed to well there was no fighting
0: <laughs> That's good, <laughs> yeah,
2: there was no screaming, there was no drama I mean I'm sure you've been i've been I've lived through making many records and with many different uh, components of groups and uh, there's been a lot of drama <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, it just seems to there's something about working on an album and particularly in a studio that just seems to beckon it forth
2: i know Mm -hmm. and that has been so absent from this when we made um strangers again first of all the musicians i listened to a lot of the people that played with ari and i i decided and he agreed that some of these players would be right we mixed up some of the people Mm -hmm. that both of us had used um a wonderful bass player that i've used worked with for decades and and a gentleman who's just a genius in the area of keyboards that neither one of us had worked with, but we both knew him, and uh, the drummer, Doug Ewell. I imagine him weeping at hearing me sing. It makes me smile because I'm crazy about Doug, <laughs> uh, Doug and Cherry Leonard. These these and the sessions were a total pleasure, a total pleasure. I mean, they're they're extremely artistic and and I don't know. Seasoned people. Mm. I mean, they're not people who are going to go off on a tangent somewhere. You know, I worked with a lot of bands in the 70s and the 60s who came three hours late uh, to the session and thought that was perfectly all right. And Mm. it seems that it was. I paid for it, of course, but never mind. (laughs) 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 So it was a total pleasure. And there was, it was, again, that part of it also is very important because, uh, you know, I'm too old
0: to go through that <laughs> <laughs> you know, talk about um, touring together you know taking taking it out there you know obviously uh, you know we were discussing this a little bit when we were sitting uh, backstage but you know that often can be you know it's own kind of uh, different experience I mean you've got the performances and you've got them down you've got them recorded but then you know bringing them out in front of an audience can be you know, uh, you know a different experience and uh, wonder what what that was like,
4: We had to recreate or reimagine these songs uh, for the live show because it was you know the, it 's always been for the last couple of years myself, Judy, and Russell Walden uh, playing piano, so we didn 't have a, a full band on stage, and a lot of our sound check time was taken up by oh okay let 's figure out how I can incorporate jerry leonard 's electric guitar part into what i 'm doing. And does this have enough rhythm without drums? Maybe uh, we should figure out a way to sing this differently, to, you know, to, to create a little more dynamic.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, those are all things you have to be concerned about when you're you know, performing in a, in, in a, you know, a more intimate uh, setup. So there was a lot of uh, thought that went into that. And because of that, our, our, the songs were fresh again. For us because we Mm. we recorded them and we had spent a lot of time you know rehearsing before we recorded but then we went on the on the road it was a a totally different experience hearing it you know uh, up there because it was stripped down
2: it was also I think wonderful to have Russell with us both in the studio Russell Walden he's been working he and I've worked together now 20 almost 25 years I think and he's wonderfully creative and able to go in amazing directions. He played something the other night that I, I was just amazed with. And so he incorporates everything that we've done in the studio and is very complementary to what Ari is doing. I'm not playing on these songs, which is such a relief.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and it's wonderful to have that kind of freedom. And so, really, Russell and... Ari are creatively finding the, the fundamental you know the, 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 uh, the foundation of, of what we're doing musically and then we sing on top of that but it's been I think very uh, comfortable and easy and something that really comes out naturally and also it's such a good change for my audiences who have heard many 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 years of me doing usually with myself you know my repertoire and so on. So it's a compliment and a change and I also think that they are loving, well I know they are, loving hearing Ari and getting to know his work. So he opens and does some songs, I do some of my songs and then we have this chance to collaborate and do things together. So it's very uh, it's an exploration that's been I think very positive for everybody the audiences and us as well.
0: Super, well we've got some questions uh, from the audience and um the first one is, what are you most proud of?
2: Getting up this morning?
0: <laughs>
2: I actually meditated. I this got a morning. good one for that. Did you? Yeah.
4: I've I just started uh, ordering a Blue Apron. Do you know Blue Apron? <laughs> because I'm a terrible, I, I, up till now, I've been a terrible cook. And oh,
2: I gave you that cookbook.
4: I, yes, you did. Ah! <laughs>
2: Okay, which which
4: way. I now can really get into now that I've
2: oh, God. That's explored a, some,
4: some you know, easier recipes thanks to Blue Apron. Julia, Aper.
2: I gave him Julia Child. Didn't I? Uh,
4: yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll get there.
2: <laughs> so you're cooking.
0: Yeah, slowly. As they
2: say. Yes.
0: <laughs> right, so to speak. Yeah, right. Um, this one is... Uh, Judy, uh, if you could sing with anyone else that you haven't sung with, who would it be?
2: Well, it'd have to be Pavarotti, and that's impossible to do live, but, uh, you know, I'd like to do a duet with him on... Do you think that's possible? Can you arrange it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know that I can arrange it, but uh, it sounds like it would be a great idea.
2: What's the guy who manages... Uh... Uh, Groban, what's his name? Foster. Oh, Josh. David yeah. Foster can uh, organize this, I think.
0: <laughs> uh, this is for the two of you. Um, in what ways have your experience in music slash the music business differed and converged? Hmm.
2: That's a good
4: question. Well, I mean, we certainly we obviously arrived at this from... You know different angles and uh, very different things that are going on in the music business mm-hmm. uh today than there, there were for you but yeah. uh, and now we both are, are in the same right? boat in the same <laughs> boat right exactly i that's it's a difficult question to answer because it's such a it's such a different time you know when when you were you know the music that you you you've, at least at the at the beginning that you were making you know it was just a completely different atmosphere mm-hmm. in the business and you know from the from the the moment that i made my first album we were starting to see itunes and mm-hmm. uh, and downloading was was uh, about well napster first was actually Terrible right around the, disaster. the yeah and, and and that was right when my first album came out so i've i've uh, but we both have the experience of dealing with columbia records in a yes. in a negative manner
2: <laughs> yeah we're both orphans of columbia that's right We've been abandoned by them. (laughs) I, without even getting the record out, you after, I think, two albums maybe?
4: Yes, yes. Uh,
2: What do they know?
4: (laughs) I kind of prefer being independent. You know, I I started my career, uh, you know, touring colleges and just getting in rental cars and driving around and trying to build a fan base like that. And uh, I did it for two or three years. Before any label discussion was yeah. uh, had, and then when I finished with Columbia, I was there for three years or something, and I was just very eager to kind of get back to the basics of relying on myself and uh, and not having to deal with the corporate thing, yeah. you know. So I, I've and and that's the way it's been since, you know.
2: Well, it's I don't it strikes me it's always been hard there's not any question that it's a difficult career to have yeah, absolutely the time the travel the travel alone you know it's you're you're getting paid for your travel mostly and what you do for the music is from fun. the heart you know that's <laughs> fun but it's always been hard but the but the shift the shift with uh, with the internet is quite severe and it's a shock to the system it offers a lot of opportunities that weren't there, and a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of things that shouldn't have happened. I mean, the, a couple of things that have been tormenting to me, which I haven't de- wasn't even realizing, and I'm sure you know about this, is the fact that performance royalties were never paid since 1939 to any artist who performed a song on the radio. Everybody, nobody really gets that. Nobody understands that. The song itself is paid for. The writer's paid for. The performer is not paid for, and that would mean that even the performer who writes the song is paid for the song, but they're not paid for the performance. So, I mean, even Frank Sinatra never got got a cent in all the years that he was on the radio. Nor have I. So it's that's that was that's already set in stone. And actually, the people who are running the new radio things with um, Including SiriusXM, who take advantage of loopholes and don't pay us. I say us, meaning all of us who recorded albums before 1972, they don't pay us on those albums. Uh, So the financial impact of that is huge. And the fact that we could never, and we've never gotten a serious, uh, successful bill passed Congress, although many people have tried. I've gone out, you know, with Mm -hmm. Sam. Sam Moore, who told me after we appeared before Congress a few years ago, his wife said to me, well, you know, last time we appeared before Congress to address this issue, we had death threats. So this is a very serious issue. I mean, it's not just Napster who's stealing from us, but Spotify and all the rest. They've made these deals, starting with television deals, to package and lump things together and then sell them for nothing and give us pennies. So there's a financial impact not only on Ari and and every artist who's working nowadays, but artists who've been here a long time, and who now find their income streams cut you know dramatically, and that's why everybody's on the road. That's, that's one right. of the reasons that everybody's on the road, and that the 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 um, competition for being in the performance world is seriously, yeah. you know, I'm doing 120. Shows a year, 130, I think, now. And, uh, you know, I have to do those to make anywhere near the money that I made before. So I'm not saying that I have a hard time. I, I love what I do. I travel like mad. You all do. I mean, everybody's on the road. So I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying that there are serious issues that have to do with what happened with the Internet how people got away with murder financially, and how they're still getting away, away with murder. So on the one hand, great opportunity. I mean, I can go on the Internet and listen to any kind of music I want mm-hmm. at any time of day or night from any genre that I want, which is fantastic. On the other hand, <laughs> it's you know, Taylor Swift has made of People like Adele and Taylor Swift and so on have made some very... Important decisions about refusing to participate with Spotify or with this particular you know throwing it all together throwing it up in the air and then it comes down and it's worth four cents so it's it's I don't know they've just passed a new bill I don't even understand it but I know it's not great for music
4: that's part of the problem that, that we don't understand it yeah, it's, and it's very know. hard to figure out it's hard uh, you know through the, all the legal terms exactly how things are working and you know, uh, as an independent artist right now, I, I just feel like I, I there's no one to guide you the right way anymore. Yeah. No one there knows
2: is what There is no clear path. Yeah, you and know, you must know that with all the work you do with artists and with no... writing,
0: you know, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a it's a similar thing. Yeah,
3: um, I mean,
4: I, I think I think all you can hope for is to to have people on your side who yeah. Really, first of all, they love what you do, but they also are go-getters. No matter what avenue you you decide you're going to take with them, your manager or wh- whatever it oh, is, yes, uh, that that they are working hard. Uh, That's right. But I- you can't you can't expect your manager to know what the right thing is to do because nobody really knows what the right thing is to do. How to release your music, you know, which uh, which format should it be? All formats? Should you make an album these days at all? You know, it's all—it's—it's it's, there's pros and cons that that you know to an extent that you ju- it just drives you nuts. So you just have to choose and go and hope that the you know the the, the right things start to happen with, with what you do and that uh, some of the, the uh, deals that you're talking about that were kind of underhandedly made uh, you know start to be ratified to, to to a point where the musicians you know get what they. are are supposed to be getting?
2: Two things I would say just add quickly. Oh, go, please. First of all, the song. The song is always going to dominate. Yeah, there's a lot of junk out there, but still I have faith in the song. Mm -hmm. I have faith in the creative process. I have faith in that. I also know, and with you I've seen this, and with everybody that I know who is young enough to get it, a lot of us, my own peers included, a lot of us... And not myself. I've always been interested in the way it worked. I never sat back and said, well, somebody else has to do it for me. I never did. I couldn't. I wasn't. First of all, I'm not built that way. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I've only been with one manager in my life, real manager, although I trained the person who works for me now, and she is now doing managing many things. But it's always a conversation, and it's all I'm always in the center of it. I left uh, Harold Leventhal in 71, I said 72, because I said, I can't not know what's going on. So I think that's a difference now. I think most of us really want to know and do know and have to know how it's working and how it's going on. But the other thing is we're lucky and because we love what we do. And I would hate to be doing something that I don't love no matter how it is, because everybody's got a problem (laughs) with a job of one kind or another. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And in that sense, we're no different. But we are different in the sense that we're doing something about which we care and which we're passionate about and in which we see a future for ourselves Mm -hmm. and for other people. And, one more thing, and live music is a service. Live music is, I think, what keeps many people on the planet. That's all I have
0: to say. (laughs) Well, before we, uh, I, I will remind you, I will remind you that, uh, you know, Judy and Ari will be signing, uh, you know, CDs and uh, I think, you know, we just heard a, um, you know, a really passionate and moving description of why it's very important to support artists and uh, particularly artists of this caliber. So, you know, thank you so much for this great conversation, the two of you. and thank you. I'll uh I'll enjoy thank your you performance with the rest thank of you. Us. Thank oh, thank you. you so much. Excellent. We enjoyed okay. it, too. It was great. <laughs> thank you.
4: great things about this experience with Judy for the last few years is that I've played uh, so many shows the the, the percentage of shows that I play in front of audiences who are listening audiences who actually care about the songs has risen tremendously. I've done a lot of gigs in my life and and, uh, many of them have been great but uh, there have been others that uh, I'd rather not do anymore. (laughs) And, uh, and, and thanks to working with Judy, uh, you know, I, I always have an experience when she is uh, asking me to come on tour with her to play f- you know, in environments that are great to play in. So thank you all for listening to us. And uh, thanks, Judy.
2: <laughs> thank you so much.
4: <sighs> so we're going to do first... Uh, one of our creations. We actually, on this album, Silver Skies Blue, we have primarily songs that we wrote together, but there were also a couple that we'll get to afterwards that uh, were on previous records of ours that we just remade uh, as duets. But here is, uh, I think this is the second song on our album.
5: Someone good for someone, give your heart for free a chance to eat the fall below, on better rise and blow. I choose love, I choose love.
1: We've been known to be good. We've been pronged to scream Going at each other To fizzle out of steam Aren't you tired of dishing out The pushes and the shots I choose love I choose love we hide from pain we criticize we veil the truth we patronize to help ourselves traverse the bumpy ride. beholden to our weary minds we go great lengths to be unkind we'd rather circle It isn't hard to see What's easier to actualize And rarely spoken of To choose love To choose life A chance to either fall below Or it rise above I choose love. I choose love. I choose love. I choose love.
2: This is one of the songs that I loved hearing on uh, Ari's records and in person, and I told him I just had to sing it, and he said, "Okay."
4: <laughs> what am I going to say? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, from an album in uh, 2009 that I put out called "12 Mondays."
2: That's worth talking about for a minute. Um, it's one of the things that that happens to us is we have to figure out different things to do, and what Ari fi- figured out, I think, after you left Columbia, after right? It left, right after. It left. Was that he would he would engage his uh, his social media, let's say, involve them in his work, and so he'd write a song every week, and his audience got to hear it on Mondays.
4: That's right. Um, yeah, for for the for 2008 for the year I wrote for a whole a song year. Uh, which was really hard. (laughs) 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 I wouldn't recommend trying that. Didn't have much of a life outside of uh, writing the songs. But at the end of the uh, year, my fans chose their favorite 12, and that became 12 Mondays. I was releasing the songs on Mondays. So this is one of those 12. ¶¶
5: boat on fire, fighting flames each day, too stubborn to expire. I will
1: soak my soul, soul. let Let the river take take control, the river river take control. control, I know it's not too late to let go. And untie all the knots that have hurt me through the years And I'll embrace the wisdom that the sun will impart And, and with this heat, heat burning inside me, me I will warm all the people that I love
2: In their darkest of hours and their weakest of minds I light up their nights with every star I can find
1: Soak my soul, let the river take control, the river take control. control. I know it's go. not too late to let, let go the way. Let go. Oh, I will soak my soul, let the river take control, the river take control. I know it's not too late to let go the way
3: goes away
2: This is uh, one of my uh, previously recorded songs. This is the one that uh, was on Columbia so shortly.
1: Packed up my bags, put in my favorite Levi's, laid my mandolin beside the door. I said to Mama, I won't be long, don't worry about me, I'll be home before dark. Eagle loves the wind till I heard him say. looks like him, they say To me she looks like Mama I see an eagle's shadow in her eyes Last night at her birthday We blew the candles out together I wonder will she take me by surprise when she says, Mama, I won't be lost be home before dark thank you
4: thank you so much everybody
2: We thought we would leave you with the song that we recorded on uh, an album called Strangers Again, a song that I heard on one of Ari's early albums. And uh, I said to him, "I, I have to sing this with you before Taylor Swift and Diana Ross get their hands on it.
1: simple as I once knew Why can't everything Be the way it was Before the day that I lost you
5: Long before the
1: afterglow Long before our tears fell slowly I wish we we were
0: listening. 92 y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.